Thank you for being here on 4th of July. We knew it was a gamble, and uh, knowing how wild this holiday can be, and I can't recall, and I don't know the math well enough to know the last time it was on Sunday, 4th of July, probably something like seven years, if my math is right, right? Is it every four years? Of course, Donovan knows. So it's been four years since we've done this. Thank you for being here. Um, it's a small group, so I'm going to do things a little differently, and I know there'll be the, there's always like the straggler crews that come in. So w once we're done with that first set of worship, I'll have the, the branches shuffle and folks come in and um, make some way and space for them. Um, because we're small too, Kim's also asked that if there's restrooms that are needed to be used, not to go around to the front door because she ends up closing that lock and for the kids' purposes so they don't escape, um, <laughs> which means you're welcome to just walk straight through here and it's not weird or embarrassing. Um, yeah, so that's good. Let me pray for us. Uh, let's stand as we worship. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. I feel compelled, especially now, to set aside um, all of this divisiveness within our nation and create an atmosphere of unity here and now under the banner of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to say we love you that we are here for a purpose, that our identity is not a national identity, but our identity is rooted in you, Christ, that who you say we are is family, is brothers and sisters under you, our Heavenly Father. We've said it before, but we know now that we walk from the sacred into the secular. This humble, meager space of a gymnasium can and will be transformed by your spirit into a place of worship into the tabernacle of God, into your presence. We love you, Lord. We give you our worship in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you sing with me? Who am I? Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me Last he has ransomed. 
Jesus, we love you. Would you be honored this morning? Would you be honored? There's nothing like being free in your love. There's no other name worthy of our praise, Jesus. We absolutely adore you. We thank you, God, for the freedom that we experience in this country. As wonderful and imperfect as it is and as wonderful as in, and as imperfect as we are, um, Lord, we recognize that it is all grace that we stand in your presence, that we worship you, Jesus. You are so worthy. You're the only thing worth building our foundation on. You're the only... You're the only God we're serving. There are so many idols that we are tempted with. Lord, we bow only to the name and power of Jesus. We love you, Jesus.
finish with this bridge. Let's sing. And I will build my life. Jesus, we do pray for our um, friends and our family who don't know you. We pray for our country. We intercede and ask God that you would just pour out your spirit. That's what we're asking for, Jesus. We love you. Would you speak through Ryan this morning? Would your spirit um, speak exactly to our hearts what you want us to hear? Translate it in a way that is perfect for each one of us, because only you can do that. You are so creative. We praise you for that, God. Be honored this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I realized last week that I didn't give nearly proper enough introduction to Kate Johnson, who's been with us the last couple of weeks. She is a very dear friend of mine and of my wife's and of my children's and our music teacher at home. Much beyond that, we liken her more to music teacher slash pastor because there are countless Sundays or weeknights where the music lesson gets put on hold because the pastoral lesson takes precedence. And she pastors our kids well. Thanks, Kate. All right, let me get my notes up. So... If you've been with us the last few weeks, it started from John Eshelman weeks ago on Father's Day talking about the family of God, walking through the radical passage of Jesus talking about don't consider yourself an earthly child of your earthly parents, but a heavenly child of your heavenly father. And we are now considered brothers and sisters under Christ. And so Christ talking about putting his kingdom upside down, saying there are are new rules And not so much the rules, but more in, there is a new kingdom that is turning everything upside down on its head. And he talked about being family together. We talk about that a lot at branches here, too. I am the vine, you are the branches. And these branches that we encompass as the church, we become brothers and sisters of Christ and of each other. And last week, if you remember, I wanted to work through Jesus and the inception of his ministry. So he goes out after 40 days in the desert into the wilderness, and he's 
launched into ministry and goes home to Galilee and walks into the temple and they hand him a scroll to read. And who remembers what he read? Anybody? Isaiah 61. That's right. Thanks, Byron. Isaiah 61. Byron's got it. And in that passage, he reads a portion of Isaiah 61. And before starting that, Luke says that today, Jesus said right before reading, today I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's me that this is talking about. And then he goes on to read the passage about what his kingdom looks like, what good news looks like. And it was good news to whom? To the poor. poor. I bring good news to the poor. And so if you're following along Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels, you'll notice slight differences between Matthew and Luke. You'll notice when he starts his seminal passage and sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew, that starts in Matthew 4, 5-ish, goes all the way through several chapters. Experts will believe that that sermon may have been several days. So we think of it as like he's sitting on the mountain and he taught through this long several chapters. But it very well could have been the followers, which were in the several hundred or thousands, were listening to him for days on end. Teaching, resting, eating, going back, teaching, resting, eating, that kind of rinse and repeat cycle. In Luke's Gospel, he references the poor. By the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with something called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes starts with these blessed passages, kind of happy, blessed, contented, satisfied, are thee. And he starts the Beatitudes with blessed are thee in, in one gospel, just as the poor. Blessed are the poor. In another gospel, it says blessed are the poor in spirit. That's right, good, Liam. Poor in spirit. It seems as if where Luke may be highlighting a continuation of that first message when he sat and stood in the temple and Isaiah 61 read through that and said, I have come to bring good news to the poor. Luke continued that and goes, you know, this message that Jesus is giving is continuing. It's going on. And as he goes into his big message, the Sermon on the Mount, as he starts with the very first thing, blessed are the poor, period. Luke puts a period in there. Luke may be telling us all about the word used there are the really poor. It's translated kind of blessed are the impoverished. Blessed is the beggar. Blessed is the one who's at the very bottom, very bottom, the very poor. And Matthew adds the poor in spirit. And it seems as if that spirit that he's adding, if you cross-reference that to a bunch of other passages, of which it's countless ways throughout the New Testament, Old Testament, is talking about a broken heart, a crushed spirit. The broken on the inside. So if Luke is highlighting, blessed are those who are broken on the outside, the poorest of poor, Matthew's highlighting, blessed are the broken on the inside, the ashamed, the crushed spirit, the hopeless. And so I want to continue in this theme about who Jesus is ministering to. This message is called The Wisdom of the Seeker. And our passage in this red letter series that we're talking about what Jesus is all about, and we're focusing on what he only had to say, um, that's why it's just the red letters. I'm in Matthew 7, 7. And it's talking in his Sermon on the Mount. We're past those blessed beatitudes, which are at the beginning. Matthew and Luke have moved on from the blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit, the meek, the humble, the lowly, the ones that we look past, the ones that the world passes over, the ones that the church shoves out, the ones that the economy says are not valuable, 
the ones that have been marginalized, the ones that we ourselves have been guilty of looking past, the ones that we don't pursue relationships with because they don't stand to gain us anything. Blessed are those people. And so I'll read to you Matthew 7 about seeking. He starts saying, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. There's much more to say. This isn't the end, and it's very hard to isolate a section of Jesus' teachings because it's so much couched in what was before and after. It's part of the reason why I talk about the beginning of his ministry in Luke, moving on to those Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he moves into here. And what I want to do today is talk about what it means to seek and find. Seeking and finding, and what that looks like. And if you remember in Isaiah 61... When Jesus read that, and if we move past the early part of what Jesus says, where he ends his passage, where he's coming to usher in the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, where all debts are canceled, where all slaves are set free, where land is given back to those who lost it, where everyone is brought whole again. That was a real tradition that happened in Israel. Jesus is bringing that. He's ushering that in, both physically and spiritually. He's doing both of those things. But the passage in Isaiah says the effect of that year of Jubilee and of the renewal that Jesus comes. He brings this restoration. The effect of that restoration is that the people that are left behind, you and I, they become these gardens planted. He's going and creating these communities, these gardens where they've received renewal. And then those people who receive God's renewal become the ones who give renewal and restoration to others, the hands and feet of Jesus. And that seed planted in that garden became and becomes these oaks or trees of righteousness. Scripture is so full of this garden imagery, going all the way back to Genesis, about the effect of the kingdom of God becoming like this wild bush that grows into a massive tree or or this desolate wasteland of a desert that became the Garden of Eden. Or these seeds planted of faith of communities Jesus left behind that become these oaks of righteousness. So I wanted to use an analogy that's near and dear to my heart. It was launched some time ago by a master luthier named Martin Schleske. He's German. And I'm admittedly like an instrument nerd. I don't know if you call it an instrument nerd or or an aficionado. I have more instruments than I need, uh, admittedly. Um, Mostly guitars, but I have more instruments than I need. Liam and Kate can attest to that. They fill the nooks and crannies of my home. And I can't seem to get rid of any of them. Um, my favorite comes from a Christmas gift from my wife, Nancy. I wish she were here because you'd be seeing her smile because it, brings, it warms my heart to think back on Christmas Eve more than a decade ago. It's the middle of the night, and she nudges me awake, and she's nervous, and she says, I can't sleep. And I think, what are you, seven? It's Christmas Eve? Like, <laughs> We're past this, right? I mean, that's, I get it if Eve or Liam come. We're like, I'm just too excited. I can't sleep. She nudges me, she goes, no, I just can't sleep. I got you a Christmas gift, and I'm so nervous that you'll hate it. And I can't sleep. And I'm trying to do, like any husband here would do, do the, like, the, babe, I'll I'll love it. Like, 
It does, whatever it is, I'll love it. Like, I don't, I could be a stone with a little heart painted on it or something. That's, I'll love it. I'll love the gift. What would you have to be nervous about? And she's right, because she knows how particular I am to, <laughs> to be nervous. So uh, despite my lying, she could see right through it, and she goes, no. No, I know because of what I got you that I'm nervous. And she's gotten me a guitar. That is a very difficult gift to give. Guitars and instruments in the hands of a player, especially one accomplished, become something that comes alive. And it's a feel, and it's a craftsmanship, and it's a sound, and it's all that together. It's not just, this is a good instrument, but it's so subjective to the feel of it. And you pick up a guitar, and sometimes you ring out a chord, and it rings, and you go, oh, that's a singer. I can feel that. It feels good, and it's made well. Well, she had taken pictures of all of my instruments. She had gone to a boutique guitar shop, shown the pictures of my catalog, of everything I had, and go, this is what he likes. This is the kind of quality that he's into. What doesn't he have? And so she picked one. It was from a master luthier named Bill Collins, who since then has passed away, which makes all the more precious the instrument that I have now, made by him. It was out of Texas. Master luthiers become masters because they disciple under somebody. They go to somebody who's a master. You don't kind of master something on your own. We all kind of know that. Like if you're into martial arts or that kind of thing, you, you go and see a sensei until you get the belts and move up in the ladder. Well, Bill Collings had done that. One of the first things that they get them into from a master luthier is how to seek good wood. Because regardless of the quality of the craftsmanship, it really is about starting with ingredients, like chefs. That's saying, you can really make a good meal, but it's about the ingredients. It's about what you pick. If you use junk, your, your skills as a chef really are secondary to the junk you put in it. And so before I jump into why I bring this story up, I want you to just soak something in from an accomplished musician playing a beautiful instrument. I'm bringing Kate up. She's brought her viola. The viola comes to life because of the wood that's inside of it, because somewhere along the lines, a master luthier spent months curing, preparing, aging, crafting this violin. Viola. Viola. Crafting the viola. And the viola now comes to life in the hands of someone who knows what to do with it. It takes both the chef and the ingredients. So now Kate becomes our chef and the ingredients become her viola. So before we move on, soak this in. If you need to close your eyes and listen to the music that gets created from seeking good wood in the hands of someone capable. such a wonderful analogy he weaves throughout this book, talking about 
the wisdom of the seeker. And he talks about how the old timers in master violin and viola and making knew how to find singers. And what he meant by that are trees suitable for making violas and violins, cellos, those kinds of things. That practice goes back to about the 1500s, upon the first time they were making these instruments. And so masters like Bill Collins, who learned how to search for wood to make guitars, would go deep into the woods and they would have to figure out how to find the right wood. Some of them would bang the axe against the tree and listen to it, quite literally, and whack the butt end of the axe and listen. Some would work really closely with the harvesters, meaning the sawmills that own these woods, to say, this is what I'm looking for. Have your people on the hunt for this. It needs to be tight-ringed, old. It needs to be 100 feet tall or more, 30 or 40 inches in diameter. It needs to have no limbs other than at the very top, a barren tree. It needs to be rock solid, and it needs to grow in really harsh conditions. Meager soil, low light, very little nutrients, harsh wind. What that means is, is that the good stuff is often growing in places very hard to reach, mm. or potentially not even legal to reach. So Martin Schleski, the German master luthier, with his friend Andreas, were hiking one day, knowing that in the Bavarian Alps there was a rabid windstorm that went through the area in the early part of winter that may have knocked down some of these centuries-old trees that are at their rocky cliff sides that grow in the harshest of conditions. You're not allowed to go and harvest up there, but they went to see whether or not any had fallen, and sure enough, they have. Having had seen them and realized there's this windfall of good wood, they had to go back to the forest commissions and say, can we harvest this? Of which they said, well, only that which has fallen, but I don't I don't think, we're not giving the approval to do it properly, meaning you have to bring flatbeds and harvesting tools, machinery, bulldozers, those kinds of stuff. You can't bring that here. This is really on the edge of the cliff. So Andreas and Martin, they hiked. It took a two-day journey with more like rock climbing tools and uh, equipment that would be hand tools to go and see what they were, what they were in for, the windfall, it was great success. It was the most wonderful wood they'd ever found. But the journey was really, really hard. Harder still was how you get these massive oaks and these massive spruce trees down the rocky cliff and harvesting it. And all they could do was muster every bit of the strength in their legs to lay on their backs, cut it into sections that were small enough to be able to have both on their backs and use their legs to push as hard as they can to see if they could get it to roll downhill. Whatever you can do to get it further down the mountain, right? Until they could get it to this this crevasse that fed into the river. The idea was kick it down the hill, get it to the crevasse, and maybe get it into the river. And by the time the snow melts, the river floats it down to the lowlands where the sawmill would be. It was incredible work and very hard. As they were kicking these big boulders away and these trees through them, they would listen. Some of them would just go dum, 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 down the hill. Some of them would ring like bells. Really? They'd hit these rocks and these big trees would bounce and vibrate. You'd hear a tree have an abnormal sound. They'd go and bark at one. That's a good one. That's a singer. They knew what they were looking for. And they wanted trees that were so starved for nutrients that they grew a millimeter a year. So starved that the rings, when you cut them in half, were almost imperceptibly narrow. 
You know, when you cut down a tree in the lowlands, in the moist areas where there's lots of sun, and you cut it right down the middle, you can see the rings, sometimes as much as an inch apart. And they teach you to tell you that's the years, right? And how old is this tree? Well, you count the rings. This could be a 20-year-old tree. These really, really old and starved trees have all imperceptibly tight rings, which means they're really hard, and they vibrate and resonate really well. So they found this windfall on the mountainside. And they found what they call the ringing bells, the ones that rang clear. And so a master luthier doesn't just happen across good tone. They don't just wander into it. You have to know what you're looking for, and most often, it's something that has a really difficult journey. If the sound of a good violin requires traveling across such great and difficult paths, how could the sound of our lives as the trees of righteousness, the oaks planted, become something wonderful? How could that sound of our lives demand less? What I mean by that is the question that I posed as I was thinking through this is, does God not give us a longing heart that we would seek after him? This pursuit that will change our lives of seeking, knowing what we're looking for, finding. When the psalm says, you who seek God, your hearts shall live. So much of the Bible when talking about the pursuit, the seeking, the searching, is not about the finding, but about the seeking. That psalm is not talking about the ones who live and the ones who found, but the ones who seek. Martin and Andreas have this beautiful metaphor talking about the search for their wood is much like the search for God. Seeking and following Jesus does not involve staying in these comfortable, lowland, moist, sunny plains and soft wooded areas. It's the rocky cliffs, it's the Bavarian Alps, it's the storm-ravaged areas, it's the narrow road, it's the hard path, and the still waters. This isn't a message talking about, you guys have been taking the wide road. Come on over to the tough one. That's where Jesus is. I think the scriptures talk so much about the seeking, about both and. You will experience the Bavarian Alps, and you will experience the still waters that the deer pants for and drinks on. The challenge is, is when we, we start pursuing one or the other exclusively. If all I ever sought was my own comfort, Jesus would not be talking about that type of seeking when he says, this is where I am to be found. I want to unpack that and what seeking and finding looks like. I'll tell a story about many decades ago. There was this growing movement in the church called seeker driven or seeker sensitive or all kinds of ways of using the seeker and how we structure our church. I was a hired gun in a church um, that was relatively local here that had a new service that was designed to be uh, really, really comfortable. Right? That's the idea of a seeker-sensitive church, to say, I'm, I'm catering to somebody who hasn't yet found. Catering to the seeker. And the mistake that we made, the mistake that I made, in crafting how the service would look, is that we way overestimated the extent that people were actually seeking. 
That was the big issue. And the bigger issue is creating this mental division between seekers and those who have found. That the church is built around people that have found Jesus or haven't yet found him. When the scripture talks more about the fact that what's clearer to me is the fact that we are all seekers. We are all seeking him. How is it that Paul in Philippians can end this passage of his teaching talking about all I want to do is to know Christ? Is there anyone that we would say earlier in their life or throughout their ministry, go, what was he talking about? Of course he knows Jesus. Of course he knows him. But he's talking about all I want is to know him, to increase in my seeking for him. It's that basic humility as a seeker that's attracted to other seekers, not the attitude that I already have what you need. The mistake I would make pastoring anyone is to say, let me give you something that I have that you don't have. I have what you need. Now that can, that can feel wrong because I know you need Jesus. Now Jesus is saying, the I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes but through me. But the journey of the Christian on seeking and finding can't be simply those of us who are teaching are teaching you how to have what you don't yet have. Versus Jesus saying to the disciples as he calls them, saying, come follow me. Come on. Come seek with me. I want to be a seeker like Paul was seeking. He says, I just want to know Jesus. I want to know him more. I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that I've found. Um, I have so many friends whose experience when they go into pastoral ministry that go off to seminary and it smashes their, their like zeal. It crushes their fear. I think because so much of the seminary process is built around finding. I found the esoteric nuance of who Jesus is here. And so now I've, in, I've increased this jar I have of things that I've found that I'm storing up. And I become an expert because I found more than you have. And disillusionment sets in because the heart's position is by default one of wonderment and seeking. I just want to seek with others who are seeking. Because if I've arrived, if this is it, if we've arrived and found Jesus, and we here at Branches say, we've arrived, this is it, welcome to finding it. You very quickly will go, something's wrong. Because <laughs> this ain't it. Have we arrived? I haven't. I haven't found something that I'm intending to give you because you don't have it. My hope is to say, can we seek together? Can we look for Jesus in ways that the psalmists talk about that longing if you read in Isaiah 61, how beautiful is it when he's talking about thirsting and longing for Jesus, and really it's the anointed one, the servant. But there's a longing and a seeking that's littered throughout scriptures, as opposed to a finding and arriving. So when I say I'm a seeker, I do not mean that I don't know what I believe. I want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. I do not mean that I don't know what I believe. I mean that my basic orientation and goal is towards God. I am looking for more and more of the one I've tasted in Jesus. 
I'm hungry and thirsty for his presence, mm. and I experience my love for God as longing. Mm. If someone said, how do you experience your love for God? Or those who are struggling to say, I don't feel it. I'm not in it. I don't experience it. One of the ways that Jesus is ministering people towards is, is experience him through longing. Do we enter a sanctuary, do we enter here on Sunday mornings with that longing? Do I, is the question? Often not. My goal is to say, how do I experience God? I experience Him through the longing. To say, I know there's more. Mm -hmm. I know there are peaks and valleys. I am longing for that more, whatever that is. And I don't always know. So I want to do something where I'm going to ask for your bravery. What does it look like, and this is meant for an open discussion, someone will have to go first and be brave. What does it then look like to seek God? If scripture is constantly full of saying, seek, seek. Jesus in Matthew 7 is saying, seek and you will find. So they're seeking and finding. Ask and it's given to you. What does it look like to seek? If Jesus was saying, come seek after me, mm-hmm. and you're walking away from that with a particular set of commands, mm-hmm. so what does that mean in your life? Practically. What does that practically mean? To seek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Byron. What can it be is uh, coming in with a, blank, with a blank sheet of paper and a, and a pencil. Yeah, <laughs> good. You might call that receptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're going to get to that. I like that. Yeah, Liam. Attempt to be as close as possible to him. Yeah, how? Prayer and general like spending time yeah. thinking about or, you know. Meditating on Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Both of those. Yes. Yes to both of those. Yeah. I think um, just being aware of what God is doing right now. Yeah. Presence. Yeah. Presence. Yeah. Presence of God. What is this? Looking what is His presence doing? Right. Yeah. Looking for the meaning in, in random events mm. that demonstrates the presence of God in yeah. that situation. I like that because it's 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 either it's either everything has meaning or nothing does. And I'm of the camp that everything does. Mm-hmm. Right? Because mm-hmm. if, if everything has meaning then we have to go to whom it gives me, whom gives meaning to mm-hmm. Like, who's giving the meaning to it? Right. Why is that meaningful? Otherwise, it is meaningless, and everything's meaningless. But we know that's not true. So what does it look like to find? If seeking is receptiveness, and meditation and prayer, is an openness to God, and is a filled with His presence, looking for God in the spaces where He's working, even in the Right in front of you and into the margins. What does it look like to find? What do you guys think? Lynn? I imagine it to be like sort of by the time you go to heaven because you're not truly with God until you're in his kingdom. So finding would be. <laughs> finding would be like you're thinking of finding is by the time you've found yourself with him in his presence in heaven. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think of. The, with the seeking, it feels like the like 
settling into the longing of, I just want to be with you, Lord. And then the, mm-hmm. the finding feels like the, the moments where it's like, the, similar to what you're saying, the little things, like there are specific ways that I know the Lord is speaking to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, sometimes it's like with butterflies, which is fairly and silly, but it's, but every time he stops me in my tracks when I see a butterfly, and it's usually in a significant moment, and even if it's not a significant moment, it's like a, it, it feels like the person um, with the parable um, where the, the man found a, something in a field, and he's like, ah. yeah. it's, it's like a, it's a delightful surprise. Right. It feels like that. Happy, happy accident. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think you have to be very intentional about whatever where we put ourselves and how we spend our time. Um, you mentioned comfort. I mean, if you're if you're overly comfortable, that's probably not a good sign. Maybe not. Um, you know, Jesus said, if you give a cup of water, if you visit people in jail, if you, you know, if you, if you take care of widows and orphans, that's, you're, you're probably in, in a good spot. You're getting close, right? You're getting there. Getting I mean, close to finding, yeah. Transient, but, you know, yeah. at least you get yeah. <coughs> you get glimpses. Absolutely. I like that. Mm. Yeah. Byron. It's like uh, having a peace. Mm. It gives you a peace, even though you may have still have, you still may not understand all the whys. Mm-hmm. If you have, a, you have this peace, you know, you don't have all the whys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't have, I have all the answers to your why questions. You know? Peace without knowing everything. Like maybe the peace that Job had when he asked the difficult question and God doesn't answer. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty big. Yeah. yeah. Were you there? No? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just him. Yeah, Liam. Well, I think the peace thing is really good because peace is defined as wholeness, so being like in whole, wholeness with God. Shalom. You know? yeah, 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 just being with God and mm-hmm. Trying to integrate everything to just everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. Mm. That's what shalom is a completeness, a wholeness. So gather all that into your basket as we connect now that last dot of why did I begin with the first message of Jesus talking about blessedness to the poor? Luke and Matthew's gospel about talking about different kinds of poverty poor in spirit, crushed and brokenheartedness. Poor, literally, I have nothing. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. Many of whom he's preaching to, that's the truth. And these oaks of righteousness, you and me, that are planted and are in these communities that are becoming these ways of of acting and giving renewal to others. So stay with me, because it feels like it's a jump. But the analogy analogy of the tree is, is one that's true here. Part of seeking, I think, is, and part of the finding, is around what we might call intentional poverty. Which sounds strange, I know. But if you think of the tree growing in the Alps, one of the ways it becomes a strong, tall, hard, suitable tree meant for making instruments is that it casts off all these low branches that that bloom early in its life. Because it's not near enough to the light, And so as it grows, there's only a little bit of sunlight because daylight is scarce. And there's really meager soil with very few nutrients. 
That's right, Donna, nor do I. This really meager soil with very few nutrients. And so it continues to cast off dead branches, knowing that if I don't cast this off, if I don't create this intentional poverty, the nutrients that I need from the sunlight at the top, the nearest to the light, would be harder for me to spread through and know. Our lives are somewhat like that. When Jesus talks about being the light and, and moving towards him as the light, I'm the light of the world. We, as these oaks of righteousness, continuing to shed these dead branches, continuing to shed off the things that are not of him. And what that's doing is creating an intentional poverty. When Matthew and Luke are talking about poverty, it's not just those who are poor, because then if you were a rich person listening to that, you're like, well, I'm not blessed. Mm-hmm. Unless I'm poor. Mm-hmm. But the Gospels are not full of Jesus simply saying divestiture. Otherwise, the message from us in church would be like, hey, who's got too much? If you want to be with us, you've got to ditch some of it. He said, Jesus said that to the rich young ruler when he came and said, get rid of everything. Precisely because the dead branches that were his things are preventing him from getting any sunlight and nutrients and becoming the tree of righteousness that Jesus is calling him into. The death that surrounded his trunk that Jesus is saying, shed this. Shed this and become suitable as this tree of righteousness. When he gives him woes, when he says, woe to you, the rich, in 624 of Luke, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. What Jesus is talking about is we place ourselves in this intentional poverty, intentional poorness, shedding off things that we don't need, And that woe is not a cry of judgment. Jesus saying, you're blowing it. It's a holy sorrow. It's it's because the rich have satisfied themselves in ways that hinders them from searching with their whole hearts. They injure themselves and the world entrusted them because they no longer know what it means to be persistent in seeking. Is it not true that when we're comfortable, like you said, we, we kind of stop looking? Stop seeking. And Jesus is saying, these dead branches we need to shed. Part of the seeking is all the things we talked about. The presence of God, finding him in the midst of other things, a receptiveness to who God is and what he's doing, a blank sheet of paper. All of that is it. But why it's so full of analogies of the poor is Jesus is asking for you to create an atmosphere in your life of intentional poverty. He is asking you to be poor. So we have to look in the mirror every day and go, Jesus, what do you mean by that? In what ways am I full on things that I need not be full of? Mm. That when I create a lack, because the soil has nothing in it, and because it's rocky, and there's a few hours of sunlight, and I'm shedding these dead branches, when the lack exists, somehow it unlocks a hunger and a longing that the Old Testament's talking about. I like in Isaiah, going back to the passages that Jesus was preaching on in that synagogue. And Isaiah says, My soul yearns for you in the night, in the morning my spirit longs for you. 
And these are Martin, the master luthier's words, talking about the violin making and seeking. It says, it's like the person with a dulled heart who, in the thick walls of his or her abundance, does not learn to listen to the Spirit of God because he's never known a longing for God. Mm. How different is the prophet Isaiah? So, I'm going to close with this. When we arrive here at Branches, each day, because we haven't found all that we have and all that we need, we're seeking. So come and seek with us today. What is God doing right now? What in my life are the dead branches that I shed? In what ways am I needing to impoverish myself? Sometimes that is real things, material things. Sometimes that's our attitudes. It's our hopelessness. It's the death that's within inside of us. But, coming back to what Byron said, there is this unusual truth that comes into play that is the space between active and passive faith. We're talking about doing things. What do we do? What do we do? Just give us the algebra, Jesus. Just tell me what to do. Just give me the math. This plus this equals seeking and finding. Just tell me what to do. He doesn't do that, I think because the way of grace is the space between active and passive. And think of the tree. The trees that Martin found and Andreas found on the Bavarian Alps, they were powerless to create the essential things it needed. Powerless. It cannot create the sun or the nutrients or the wind or the soil cannot create any of the things essential to be to becoming wonderful tone. It can only receive. It can only receive it. It is powerless to create the essential things. You are powerless to create the essential things. You can only receive them. When Byron talked about the blank sheet of paper, what I want is a heart of that receptivity. I am powerless to muster up and create the algebra saying, I've done this. Now am I seeking? Now am I finding? Have I found it? I think step one is the receptiveness to say, between that active and passiveness, I know that I cannot create the grace I need. I know that I cannot create the presence of God that I need. I know I can create none of the essential things that Jesus says that I need. I create none of it. I offer none of it. I can only receive it. Receptiveness becomes the issue for me. So, Kate, as you come on up and as we think of receiving in worship, let's get past these silly notions. Going to energy and exercise and Christian mobility and motion to create an essential thing that we can't create. Maybe this morning we simply need to seek his presence by receiving him and the essential things we need. And each day I'm saying, Lord, what are these dead branches that I'm shedding? So that I become this oak of righteousness, Isaiah 61 says. And find the Jesus that Jesus is promising we can find.
branches. May we go from here with the blank slate. May we go from here anointed in the spirit with intentional poverty, setting aside the dead branches in ourselves that isn't searching and seeking and finding the light of Jesus. May we be brave tomorrow morning to spend time with the Lord and say, Lord, help me to seek May we have the humility not to share with others what we have found, but to invite them to seek with us. Come seek with us. Come with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing your face to us. Thank you that your presence is here. We thank you that we have the ability to receive and that your spirit dwells with us to actually receive from you. And so, Father, we pray for more. We want to receive more of you. We pray that this outpouring isn't something just here and now, but throughout this week until we meet again. So we come back together next Sunday and say, what are we receiving? What has the Lord done? How has he shown up? Where is his presence? So God, we love you. Thank you for this time. In the name of Jesus, amen. Happy Fourth of July, branches. Thanks for being here.